Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Miss Murder Britches. <laughs> That's an inside joke for a couple people on Twitter. I am Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, and welcome to this week's episode. A um, couple of things. This is our last episode of 2018. We're going to take a two week break to help get some planning ready for 2019 and take a tiny bit of a break, give the guys a break, um, you know, that type of thing. We will be back um, the first Wednesday of the new year. And that will be a really cool episode based on who I've got scheduled to interview next. Um, Aside from that, I know it's a tough time of year for a lot of people. So remember, you're not alone. Um, My DMs on Twitter are always open. um, And you can always email at ltpfpod at gmail.com or reach out to me on social at Bobby Sue um, on Twitter. And I'm at Bobby Sue DH on Instagram. Also, we've got our Facebook group, and that's a really great place to start up some conversations over the next few weeks, get some goals, um, you know, out into the world and talk about next steps in your career, whatever. So just Google leveling the playing field group and um, in Facebook, just search for it, not Google it, sorry, um, and join. There are two questions that I would prefer that you answer just because I like to be amused. Um, and we're trying to um, start some conversations up in there. Um, for me, the new year is, you know, one of those points in time where I try and get my shit together, basically. And um, I've started a little bit early this year with some resolutions with, you know, working out or um, goal setting, that type of thing. So, I'm really excited for 2019 and um, with regards to the podcast, we have some exciting changes um, for the website so that maybe you guys actually go to it (laughs) Um, and also with engagement, things like that. So um, I really hope that 2019 is a year where we get some more um, interaction going between all of you and um, myself and even even our guests. I think that would be really great. And today I have Amy Hutchhausen, um, who is the commissioner of the American East Conference. Um, Amy has been in college athletics since she graduated college. Um, she's gone from a couple of different conferences up to the NCAA and then back to the American East. She has been named a sports business journal game changer, um, a top 40 under 40, And she's made some really great changes at the America East. Um, The two biggest ones are the focus on LGBTQ inclusivity um, and also um, a focus on mental health. Um, of student athletes. So we talk a lot about those. We talk about the various steps in her career. Um, We talk about her dog a little bit and books and it's just a really nice conversation and there are some very good lessons for um, people who are thinking of working in college athletics at 
the conference um, level. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Amy Hutchhausen. Hey, Amy. Hey, Bobby Sue. Thank you so much for coming on our little podcast. You know, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be joining you today. I'm super excited to have you. Um, you've had such a really cool career, and I have so many questions, like, just about what you do, like, because I don't think anybody really understands what commissioners do. Yeah. In, in anything, like, even <laughs> in, even in the league that I work in, so... <laughs> um, this will be really fun and, um, you've done some really great things. So, um, let's start off with what we ask everyone, which is how did you fall in love with sport? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know if there's a good answer. I just, as soon as I, you know, can start, if I go back to my childhood and think about just what I gravitated toward, you know, as soon as I can remember, um, it was sports. You know, there was something about being active and physical and uh, the competition part of it that I just really enjoyed. Um, and so I don't know that there was one one particular moment or, or incident or, you know, some game that I saw that suddenly I was like, yeah, that's what I am interested in. I just feel like it was almost intrinsic to, like, me being born because uh, I, I don't know anything other than sports, to be quite honest. I've always loved it, um, playing it, watching it. And so, um, yeah, it's just been part of who I am for as long as I can remember. So you, um, you were actually born in Seoul, weren't you? I was, I was born in Seoul, Korea. Yeah. When did you come over to the United States? I was adopted when I was only eight months old. So, oh my gosh, I don't remember anything about that. It's funny when people, people actually ask me, I'll, I'll tell them just like I told you eight months old and they'll say, what do you remember? Well, and nothing, of course. I'll say like, well, what do you remember when you were eight months old? <laughs> I remember exactly the same thing. So, um, yeah. So, you know, being here in the U S and, you know, growing up in America is, is all I know. Oh, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. have you been back? I have not been back. Um, you know, and you know, with a lot of people who have been adopted, even here, you know, domestically in the States, um, you know, there's, there's folks that are interested in, you know, either going back to the, the country from where they were born or trying to track down their, their birth parents or something like that. And that's just never been quite candidly something that I have, that has been compelling to me, yeah. um, for, for whatever reason I can't, you know, pinpoint it, but I, I certainly, like I said, know that people, um, really <clears throat> want to pursue that. And I think that's great. It's just something that I've never been. Like, like, like I said, emotionally compelled to go do. Sure. Uh, I'm not disinterested in it. I would love to go visit Korea, but I'd love to go visit Korea just like I would love to visit any number of countries. Right. And I think, you know, maybe because I was so young when I came, when I was adopted and I don't know anything else, it just, you know, to me, it's like, what would it add to, to for me? What, what would it add to my life to know anything about that part of it? Because I've been so blessed here right. that you know, it might be helpful to know, but it's not going to, I don't think materially change anything about, you know, my perspective on the world. Well, and you don't, because you were so young, you probably don't have that, um, missing piece feeling maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a really, yeah, that's a really good point. I think a lot of folks 
who feel compelled to go do that. I do think there's an element of that or a mystery or something, or, sure. you know, maybe not to you know be a psychologist, which I'm certainly not, but there's maybe some other gap in their life that they're trying to address and, you know, you know, figuring that out might, might fill it. Yeah. Um, that's just not how I, how I've grown up or how I view the world or how I've experienced life. So, um, as far as I know, and I, I joke with my friends that, you know, even though I obviously <clears throat> was born in Korea and therefore I, I present very Asian looking. Um, I joke with my friends that I, you know, I'm American. I grew up here in the U S and like I said, that that's really all I know for better or worse. Well, I mean, yeah, just like I think any other Asian American, right? Um, yeah. Uh, I'm always um, interested with how, how people feel regarding adoption or what have you when, when they're an adoptee, right? And, um, I think part of it is like, so I wasn't adopted, but like, I don't remember much of my biological dad. He died when I was eight. So I'm always a little like, I wonder if I have sim- like that similar, like I want to know more as yeah. some people um, who yeah. have been adopted. And then yeah. I think about taking the 23 and me things. And then I'm like, but then somebody has my DNA and then it's like a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have the same experience. <laughs> I'm fascinated by 23 and me and whoever else does that. But I'm also a little leery about uh, letting a company have that, you know, deep level of information about about me yeah. as a person. So I've, I've resisted thus far. This just totally went on a tangent, but that's fine. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I went that way. Um, what um, when you were, you know, growing up and playing sports? What were the sports that you really gravitated to? Uh, mostly playing softball and basketball. Those are the two that I remember as a kid, like, um, you know, going in my driveway to shoot, shoot baskets, like as you know, every day or every night, as long as, you know, as I can remember when I was a kid and then, um, you know, cause that's something you can do by yourself. Mm-hmm. So I would go do that often. And then, you know, from starting to play T-ball back when I was, you know, however old, six or seven years old, and then, you know, tr- turning into to softball. Um, those are the ones I remember playing like the earliest in my, in my life. You, um, when you were looking at colleges, you grew up in Minnesota, which Jesus, could that be colder? But <laughs> yes, it could because you yeah. went to University of Wisconsin lacrosse. So how, um, how did you make that decision um, where you were going to go to school? Yeah, you know, it was, I'd like to say that it was this really like deep <laughs> examination. And, and I did certainly like look at college and schools. I knew I wanted to be within driving distance of home, um, but I didn't want to be right in the Minneapolis, St. Paul, Twin Cities area because that's where I grew up. I wanted to have a little bit of distance to get a different experience. And so, you know, I looked around the Midwest, schools in Wisconsin, um, you know, I think Indiana, Illinois. Uh, Iowa and I think one in South Dakota <clears throat> and I ended up yeah you know I'd be able to cross like you mentioned um, the thing that really compelled me to go there was that they had a sport management major mm-hmm. and while there's like a plethora of those programs now across the country there wasn't back when I was looking at schools and so there's really only a couple I think maybe two that of, of the schools that I was looking at that had a sport management or sport administration program and lacrosse had it it was two and a half hours south of Minneapolis Driving wise, I, it's a beautiful part of the country. If you haven't been there, right on the Mississippi and the, in the River Bluffs, and so all of those things, um, you know, found it. I found it to be attractive, and, and that's how I ended up there. Um, in terms of <clears throat> playing sports in college, I was 
always, you know, like to describe myself as like a good athlete, but I was never great at anything. And, you know, being only five foot two, you really have to be great or even better than great to play at the division one level. And I just wasn't that. So the, but I had the chance to play division three athletics, which I, I really, you know, enjoyed and valued the division three philosophy. And that, that gave me an opportunity to continue playing softball in college. So I was able to do that lacrosse. I had a sport management program. It was in the geographic you know, proximity that I was looking for. So it all seemed to work out. When, um, when you mentioned the D3 philosophy, um, you know, I think a lot of us, when we were younger, we understood that D1 was really good sports schools, scholarships, blah, blah, blah. But unless you really dug into it, you didn't know much about the difference between a D1, D2, and D3. So would you mind explaining, especially for some of those younger um, listeners, what the difference between the the divisions is? Yeah, certainly. Uh, You know, Division One is the one that most of us are familiar with. We see it on TV more often. Um, You know, there, the the big difference there is that Division One yeah, has a number of athletic scholarships where you can you know go to college, get athletic scholarship, and go play your sport. And a lot of a lot of the schools at the Division One level, particularly the most prominent in the Power Five conferences, are some of the bigger research institutions uh, in the world, in, in the, and certainly in this country. So <clears throat> there's some parallels there in terms of their investment in athletics. Uh, Division Two is a place where there's also scholarships offered. Um, there's not as many scholarship opportunities in Division Two as Division One, but there are some. And then Division Three, which actually is the biggest division in the NCAA, meaning there's the most number of schools in the U.S. that that sponsor Division Three sports. There's no athletic scholarships in Division Three. It's really viewed as the true kind of foundational extracurricular, co-curricular activity where student athletes are expected to be full students, and then they do. These other things like play sports on this side, but it, it the demands on a Division three student athlete are just different. Not not necessarily more or less, but very different than they are in Division one in terms of the expectations to perform athletically. And there does that does exist at Division one a little bit more than does in Division two and three. So that's you know a sort of quick distinction between differentiation between Division one, two, and three. Um. I remember figuring out where to go to school and I was very, <clears throat> oh, how shall I say this? Bullheaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my old coach would, would have called me or, mm-hmm. or something else. And I was like, nope, just going to UMass. Sport management, that's it. Going to UMass. Yeah. That's, I had no idea what it was. Did you know yeah. what sport management was? I really didn't. <laughs> I I'd not certainly not back then. I knew I liked sports, and so anything with sports was certainly an attractive thing. But I didn't know the details of the program to be to be that honest. But it certainly was closer to something that I liked, just right. because it had the name sports in the title, than you know something more generic like marketing or business or finance or whatever. What did you think um, you were going to do with that degree? I thought that I would, on a very generic level, allow me, it would just allow me to keep being involved with sports. Uh, when I was a freshman, I had no idea what that meant. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I started to take a few classes, but, but really 
more until I started to be involved in the athletics department, like my sophomore year of college, where um, I was on our campus's student athlete advisory committee, which just about every NCAA school has a camp uh, student athlete advisory committee, where it's um, student athletes from a number of different teams that serve in a on a committee that meets sometimes with the administration and things like that. And so it wasn't until that experience that exposed me to our athletics director at UW Lacrosse and our assistant AD and, and those types of folks to say, okay, you can really have like a career in working in college sports. And because I, because I like playing sports, I was like, why wouldn't I do that? And certainly I was also thinking at least at the time, like, Oh, it'd be great to go work in pro sports. I grew up in you know Minneapolis. So we had lots of pro teams and I thought that would be something, you know, maybe that I could do someday, even though I had no idea what that really meant, as maybe a lot of freshmen and sophomores do do, or how they think about things. But that's, like, very generically. I just I thought it would allow me to continue to have a touch in sports other than just, like, being a fan. And that was attractive to me. And then, you know, as I moved through from sophomore year into junior year, I started being a student worker in the athletics department and getting a little bit more details and background on what it means to work in college sports. And I had an opportunity to be on an NCA student athlete advisory committee, which really opened my eyes to the opportunities in the college sports industry. And that's really what was the catalyst, I think, for me to begin my career in college sports. I think that's awesome. What a great opportunity at that time. Yeah, I was very fortunate. I, I was I was blessed to have an athletics director who, you know, took an interest in me or saw some potential that I certainly didn't see myself. And she really was encouraging to get me involved in these different committees and, um, you know, just just giving someone an opportunity like that, right? Like opening their eyes or opening a door for them. And then certainly it's it's up to them to take advantage of that. And I I think I did, um, but it wasn't. If not for her being willing to do that for me, I don't know. You know, you never know how things would have ended up. Right. How did you end up with your first role out of school? I ended up with that because of, you know, what I just mentioned, the opportunities to get involved with the NCA governance structure and the opportunity to go to uh, an event like the NCA convention where all the administrators from all three divisions come together and the networking opportunities that that afforded me. I was able to meet some folks <clears throat> and stayed in touch with them, and that led to an internship at the at the Big East Conference that you know the year after I graduated from college. So uh, that's really how how I broke in was was the exposure, the networking, and then certainly you know being able to be somewhat competent, I think, in what I was doing. But that <laughs> that's that's really how I got in, and I haven't looked back since. I've been I've been really lucky in that way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you basically just like went step by step up the ladder for quite a while, um, at at the various conferences. And, um, I wonder, can you explain you, you started in compliance. So what did that mean? What were you doing? Yeah. Rules compliance in the NCA is, is not enforcement. That's a separate activity. It's related, but it's <clears throat> it's separate. The enforcement is uh, is obviously sort of as the thing implies, like investigating and bringing cases through the NCA enforcement process and that sort of thing. It's very different than rules compliance, which is more policy based work. It's you know working with different committees and serving on different committees to develop the rules and policies. 
uh, and then also working with your member institutions, if you're at a conference, for example, um, help them answer questions about how the rules apply. So, <clears throat> you know, giving them rules interpretations, they say, hey, our, our coach wants to do X, Y, or Z. Is that permissible? And then you, you know, go do your research and, and help them advise them on whether that is permitted or not and or how to get there. Um, so that that's how that's what rules compliance means in in NCA world. And so I spent a lot of time, yeah, in my career uh, involved in that particular area in, in the rules compliance. It's it's a sort of akin to being a lawyer, not exactly, but they <laughs> share some similar skills and characteristics in terms of you know rules and policy and bylaws and you know doing legislative research and that sort of thing. And from from like a conference level, right? You there's the NCAA. And then there are the conferences and then there are the member institutions and within the conferences, I mean, I'm thinking of this kind of as a lawyer, right? Like you've got the federal laws, but then you've got like state laws. So I'm assuming that the conferences have some of their own rules and things that you need to help develop, um, you know, uh, socialize within the member institutions and then um, help them to comply, right? Yeah, exactly. Every conference has, yeah, you're, that's a perfect analogy. Um, conferences do have the discretion to have their own rules, set their own rules. And most of them have some level. There's most in Division I uh, aren't, don't have like an incredible amount of Weird. differences or more, <laughs> yeah, more restrictions than the NCAA. It's so um, strange that that would happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of folks just default to the NCAA rules in just about every area. And you know, there's reasons for, for that, but certainly there are conferences that do have some rules. And then, you know, a lot of the rules that we have are really not rules, but policies that conferences set are with respect to, you know, their sports and the championships, you know, like what are the, what's our policy for how many teams can make it to a championship? What's our tie-breaking criteria if we end up with a regular season with X number of teams tied and, and things of, of that nature? Um, but, you know, for example, at the America East Conference, we don't have a lot of rules that uh, in the categories that the NCA governs, like recruiting right. eligibility. We have very few rules that are uh, actually only one that is I think one, one or two that are um, sort of variations on the NCA rules. And a, a big reason for that, quite honestly, is competitive equity. Right. If you know, if a conference takes a more restrictive stance on any particular thing, then. To some folks, you're you're giving your schools, you're putting your schools at a disadvantage uh, competitively from than the rest of the your counterparts in Division One. So that's why, in most cases, uh, conferences generally default to NCA rules, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, we've seen in the last I don't know ten years a lot of oh God. I feel like I say ten years, but it's probably been twenty um, <laughs> of movement between conferences, especially yeah. in things like football. Um, but you know, uh, for those big football schools, right? Yeah. Conference realignment has certainly been, yeah, it's been about 10 years. I think you've got the right number. It happened before that, but the, the great flurry of activity was, a, was about 10 years ago, uh, from, from right now when the, the latest changes that affected every division one conference, except for one, uh, happened. And so, yeah, there's a lot of movement activity and it's, you know, it's very disruptive. I think yeah. to college sports, it's distracting. I certainly understand some of the reasons at the highest level of the power five, because there's so much money and revenue involved. 
uh, the, the trickle down effect that it had, which we often see in lots of systems, it <clears throat> it affected all of the rest of us, even those of us that, you know, generally competitively speaking are, are very similar to each other, mm-hmm. both in, in our results competitively, our revenue earning potential, uh, but it still affected realignment and there were still schools changing from one league to another. And it just it was a very disruptive period of time in college sports, in my opinion. I can't remember. Is my alma mater still in America East? UMass? I forget who you're... Uh, oh, UMass Amherst? Yeah. No, they, we went they're to, in the Atlantic 10. Eight, oh, right. I'm like, yeah. I don't know. We moved around a whole bunch, too, because I yeah. think that... Yeah. I think for football, though, we're in, like, mid-Atlantic or something. Uh, you were in the Mid-American Conference, and now you are an independent FBS Oh, that's just institution. Interesting. A, a difficult uh, and interesting position to be in. Yeah. yeah. Never mind. We'll talk about that offline. I have yeah. thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. I just remember when that was all happening and then even just with bowl games, right? Like, yeah. again, we'll f- focus on football, which is really just like, you know, it's annoying because it's the the sport that gets the most attention, but it does tend to drive a lot of revenue. Um, But um, living in Florida, uh, people are crazy. And the, the bowl stuff is insane down here. And I know that if UCF doesn't get recognized in a bowl one of these years, it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's been a little bit of conversation around that. Yeah. <laughs> um, how, when you kind of bopped around between a couple of different conferences um, and ended up at the America East as an assistant commissioner. So what did that look like for you in terms of, you know, what your job responsibilities were? Yeah, the, the opportunity to come to America East uh, back in whenever that was <clears throat> as assistant commissioner, uh, I, the reasons for, you know, I left the ACC, uh, which is a fantastic league, mm-hmm. you know, lots of, a powerful football, basketball brands and all that sort of thing. Um, so going to, you know, in some people's eyes, a smaller conference and whatever was a little bit of a question mark, but the opportunity to sort of run my own compliance shop, if you will, like be the compliance person as opposed to report to someone else who, who oversees that was a good opportunity for me. And then the opportunity to live in Boston, you know, I was still, I think in my, yeah, I was still in my twenties when, when that opportunity came up and, I was living in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is a fine place. But, you know, when you're young or younger and uh, don't have any sort of strings attached, the opportunity to live in a, a great city like Boston was, was too good to pass up. So um, those are like the two big reasons why I, I left the ACC to go to the America East. But from a career perspective, certainly the opportunity to, like I said, run my own shop and be an assistant commissioner was an important career step up the ladder, if you will that I, it was, it was just too good to pass up. So are there in that setup, are there multiple assistant commissioners or is it just like, you know, kind of like how it would be at a pro league where it's commissioner and then like deputy commissioner? Yeah. Every conference sort of sets it up a little different, of course, but the, the, in descending order, yeah, it's a, it's a commissioner. Some conferences will have a deputy or senior associate or executive associate, whatever that level is. And then, 
you know, however folks set it up, you know, you could then have another level of associate commissioners and then another level of assistant commissioners. Um, it, it just depends on a very particular conference. Back then, um, you know, the America East was only maybe nine people big or something like that. So oh my gosh. it should be the, yeah, and we're only 11 today, um, which is a pretty common size for a mid-major conference. Um, <clears throat> but that's where being the, the lead person in an area is really important, even if it is a smaller conference. You know, it's taken me many more years to have that same kind of comparable level of responsibility at a conference like the ACC. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be able to do that at a, at a still relatively young age and early in my career was was a good opportunity I have. Anything that has like, uh, even if there's a prefix before commissioner is a good step up the career ladder. Yeah. <laughs> the career ladder. So with your role there, were you... I guess what I'm trying to get at is you were responsible solely for the compliance and then there would have been like another assistant commissioner who was in charge of something else. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're by, they're by, you know, topical area or department or division or however you want to, you know, sort of however that's used in more of the corporate setting. Sure. But yeah, there's usually their buckets of commissioner, I'm sorry, compliance governance, uh, you know, there could be media, communications, content, you know, in today's yeah. world, there's content, branding, external affairs, internal affairs. But yeah, they're, they're sort of, the demarcation is by, by functional area or unit. And just so that I'm being clear, I'm not trying to minimize. I'm just, I'm looking at all of the different things and being like, oh yeah. my God, at what point did you learn all of this stuff? Uh, yeah. And yeah. were you able to like, you know, kind of, um, expand that. I mean, you're picking things up anyway, right? Just like anybody does in any job, you're, you've got your role, but then you're picking things up from the people around you in the different departments. But to, you know, go from focusing solely on compliance for the most part, you know, and with 11 people, you're picking things up here and there and everyone's helping everyone, which I'm just kind of shocked. Like, there were nine people then and there are only 11 now. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's, um, do you, you know, you're, you're limited by your revenue, right. And yeah. what you can afford. Um, and yeah, that's, I think that's a great thing. One of the things I le- liked about working in conference offices when I was, uh, going through my career and in terms of a learning experience is the opportunity to, yeah, spend time with, championships and communications or at least being around it enough and familiar with it enough to have some working knowledge of it. And yeah, the smaller office you are, of course, people are wearing that many more hats. And so, yeah, in addition to the opportunity to lead a compliance area by coming to the America East back then was the opportunity to also run some championships, conference championships, which at the ACC, there's just a bigger staff. And so as an assistant director there. I just didn't have the exposure opportunity to do those other things. I really was, um, you know, in my lane, so to speak, <clears throat> very specific lane of compliance and governance. And so the opportunity to expand my wings or expand my perfor- portfolio just a little bit by coming to the America East, even though I was, my primary was compliance mm-hmm. was certainly pretty attractive to me because at that point in time, like you mentioned, I had primarily only been doing compliance. I'd been able to get involved in some championships when I was at the Missouri Valley Conference because, again, that's also a mid-major conference where everyone is involved in multiple things. Um, but to do it at in a different part of the country and 
um, with a title of an assistant commissioner is also very different than if you're just, not just, but if you're an assistant director. There's just a different level of interaction, respect, and what have you between the institutions and the conference office. So that was that was a good opportunity. And it's a good lesson, I think, for anybody in their career who's thinking of making the next move, right? And um, I'm thinking like, well, do you go with the, the name, you know, yeah. and maybe not have, you know, more responsibilities, but it's the name, or do you go somewhere smaller, but you're going to have so much more responsibility and, and get maybe that great title um, yeah. and get to yeah, learn a- so much more. It's a dilemma for sure, and I faced that, you know, when I was coming up through my career, going from, you know, the Missouri Valley Conference, like I mentioned, when I was able to be involved in lots of different things, even though I was still never leading any particular area, but I did get exposed to the championships, volleyball championship, our basketball championship at the Missouri Valley, still one of the best mid-major basketball tournaments in the country, in my opinion, and I I went to the bigger conference of the ACC knowing that I was not going to have that exposure to other things. And so you have to find it in other ways. But, yeah, that was the reason then that I moved on to the America East for exactly that reason, to broaden my exposure and experience because I knew it would be helpful someday down the road. But I, the, the push and pull of big brand name conference, big brand name institution or whatever the industry is versus experience, I think is really important for folks to understand at different points in their career, right? right. <clears throat> You're not going to always have the opportunity to, have such a wide exposure, the, the higher you up uh, in, in a career. There's, there is specialization to a certain extent because that's how you develop leadership and management. But figuring out when to get that broad exposure before or after is, I think, really important. And in mapping out a career, just figuring out how to position yourself. For sure. I, I think it's really easy to get, you know, kind of stuck going along the very traditional path, you know, in you know, whatever it is and not kind of look at what other opportunities may help you grow um, or give you that little extra sparkle that you need on your resume. Right. Even if it, if it is like going from somewhere where you've got really broad range experience to some, somewhere where you are specializing more, but it's the name of where you're working. Right. Um, When, what made you make the jump to the NCAA um, and working with, you know, membership? Yeah, I think it was really, I had, I had been in uh, three different conference offices at that point in time for, that covered about seven-ish years of my, first seven years or so of my career. And I was just ready to do something different. You know, I, I, I wasn't at the America East for very long back then, I think only about a year and a half, but an opportunity came up at the national office as some, some place that I'd always wanted to work, uh, honestly. I think that, and that was rooted in my experience as a student athlete and being on the NCA Student Athlete Advisory Committee. I got some really good early exposure to how the national office works. And being, you know, at least at that point in my career, a, a, a regulatory nerd and really, you know, <laughs> really getting caught up and enjoying the process in terms of how a question becomes an issue, becomes a policy, becomes a rule, 
was really fascinating to me. And a lot of that work happens at the national office. So they facilitate a lot of that work. Mm-hmm. And so I just had a really good opportunity that finally came up at the right point in my career at the right time that was too good to pass up. So that, that's why I went to the national office to, to get that experience at, at the highest level within our structure or the, or the industry of, or the field of college sports. Um, and it was, you know, such a fantastic opp- opportunity to get that the type of experience that I mentioned on the regulatory side, but then also be in a building with, at least at that time, there were like, I think 400 employees, our department oh that I was in was like 80 plus people. And, you know, prior to that, I'd been the biggest place I had worked was the ACC, which at that time I had like 30 or 35 people. So this was much different experience and, and really opened my eyes to broader management and, um, uh, you know, personnel management, management of issues and all of those other things that you just don't get or really hard to get in, in, in a smaller office, like a conference office. Right. Because you couldn't have had that many people below you when you were at the American East, if really any. Yeah, no, I, I didn't, I didn't have anyone reporting to me. And so I had the leadership and oversight of the area, mm-hmm. but I didn't have the, the personnel management of, of things. And that's really important experience to have, obviously. Right. Um, so <clears throat> that, that was really, really helpful. Um, and one of the, I think probably the best takeaway that I have from my time at the national office is just getting that management experience, understanding how to work through, uh, HR issues. Those, those are really important things to learn mm-hmm. um, and deal with such a broad spectrum of people, both in our department and across different departments um, in a way that just, you know, didn't exist, doesn't exist in the conference office. What did you find um, was the biggest challenge when you went from, you know, subject matter expert leader to manager of people? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the biggest challenge was figuring out, for me at least, was figuring out how to manage people as, as a first-time manager, but then managing people that you're also friends with. Mm. Um, there's a great spirit of collaboration and collegiality at the national office. Um, and not that everyone's best friends with each other, but certainly, you know, just like I think sports in general, and the, the broader sports industry um, you know, you end up having a lot of good personal friends in the industry because you're spending so much time together. Right. And I don't see that in the same way as I look at my friends in other industries. And so <clears throat> there was no different at the national office then. I, I had some really good friends there uh, or even just people that I was, you know, cl- more than colleagues, you know, with in terms of having a, a relationship with knowing more about their families and that sort of thing. And having to supervise them is just a, it's a different experience. It, it, it's not so, um, it makes it harder to be objective and do those things when you have to deal with that extra layer of, of relationship that you got to manage. And so those were the types of things that you just can't replicate. You can read about how to do that. Uh, you can, you know, watch videos or whatever, be, <laughs> be lectured about here's how you manage people. And here's even how you manage people that you, you're friends with and, how to separate those things. But until you actually experience something like that, uh, it's, it's a challenge. And so that was something that I think was an early challenge. And then just doing it in the construct of a big organization, sure. right? Like 
<clears throat> getting exposure to things like, well, we, this is the right thing to do. We know that, but because of these other uh, political issues or constraints, we can't do that right now. And so getting exposed to, to politics, quite honestly, at a much bigger level, because those, those, they exist even in a really small office. Right. Um, it's just the nature of people, right. of anything that involves more than one person. Uh, but doing it at the national office, that was really, really good experience, I think, um, that's helped me in my, my current position and also just uh, in the work and working with NCA committees and people and managing issues. So all of those things, navigating the political dynamic, you know, I would, I would label that as like the broad category mm-hmm. was something that I think I learned a great deal of working at the national office. Did you have um, anybody who is mentoring you or assisting, you know, trying to help guide you through being that first time manager or even, you know, yeah. as you were developing your, your management skills? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely so. You've had a lot of people that have been helpful, but um, <clears throat> the person that recruited me to the NCA uh, and that I reported to when I first started there was. Uh, a mentor and has turned into one of my best friends and, and still continues, continues to be a mentor to me today. Um, so that was a good early lesson in terms of re- me being the sort of direct report reporting to someone that uh, was one of my good friends, but managing through, you know, it wasn't always, everything didn't always flow smoothly, of course. Right. So having the experience of managing that then taught me to how to manage it when I was the supervisor. Um, and then there were just other uh, you know, vice presidents or managing directors in our department that were really helpful in navigating that. But you have to, you know, seek that out in a really big office, really big department. Um, I felt it was incumbent on me to go seek out that mentorship uh, as much as I thought, you know, more so even than I thought it was their responsibility to teach me just because the volume is, is so great. The pace is so fast. Um, you have to make time to learn how to do that stuff if you want to do it well. Right. Um, and I, I was fortunate that folks gave me time. Uh, and those are people both in our department and then across the National Office building. That's great. Were you there at the same time um, that Terry Jackson was? Terry Carmichael was, at the time? I was not. Mm. I was not. I, I missed her. She was, she's one of our favorites on the podcast and in my life. Yeah. She, yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm, but it's kind of like, you know, you're. I'm from... Massachusetts, you know, and I say I lived outside Boston. They're like, oh, my friend lived outside Boston. Do you know? And I'm like, no. There's yeah, a ton of people. Yeah. So I just did that <laughs> right. to you. That's cool. Uh, no, that's okay. <laughs> I know the name. I've, I've never had a chance to meet her, but I've, I've you know, certainly heard great things. I know she's doing good stuff now. So. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I have been going through kind of that experience that you had at your first you know, student at America East where it's like subject matter expert, don't really have somebody below me. And, um, and you're right though about learning how to manage people because even though I don't have someone directly below me, there are a lot of, um, staff members that I have to manage a little bit in terms of, you know, delegation and stuff. And so I I love what you said about having uh, seeking out that, um, uh, that mentor or whatever. I'm very fortunate. The person who hired me when I was first hired um, at my current organization is amazing uh, manager. And so I was able, obviously able to pick up a lot from him and he is very much concerned about the growth of his employees. Um, but I, you know, I've done a 
I think it's good you could do it outside your organization too, right? You can reach out to other people that you like their leadership styles or you like their management styles and want to learn from. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think I love having a level of curiosity and eagerness and then probably most importantly, willingness to learn mm-hmm. and change is critical in, in anything you do in life, let alone just your career. Um, and I think the people, the folks that the longer it takes for, for folks to understand that, I think certainly the more frustrated they get in their positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, then the, their progression just is slowed. So I, that's something that I, I try to have I'm not perfect at it mm-hmm. certainly. Um, uh, but I try to have that and I, I try to look for that in people as well, a curiosity and willingness to learn. Sure. Um, There is a really great organization that you're a part of that I think offers that um, resource to uh, women who particularly who work in college sports, and that's women leaders in college sports. Can you talk a little bit about that organization? Yeah, it's the, as its name describes, it's, it's the professional development organization or trade association, if you will, for uh, any female who works in the college sports industry and even, and even beyond it's, it's, it's really starting to grow and expand. Um, and it it provides a great service to develop women leaders. You know, there's different programming opportunities available, whether you're, you know, brand new, you know, early, early stages of your career to senior level, ready to be an AD or commissioner, or even then once you're in that chair, uh, there's still continu- continuing education development opportunities there. So it runs a gamut and really trying to build the pipeline uh, for future women leaders because obviously the numbers still are what they are in terms of female representation at the athletic director level, um, particularly in Division One. It's most acutely small. Right. Um, <clears throat> at the AD and, and commissioner level, the commissioners are, are doing better in terms of percentage-wise. But building that pipeline so that we're continuing to get more women in assistant ADs, associate ADs, associate commissioners, deputy commissioners to then one day become an AD or commissioner across all three divisions of, you know, the NCA, I think is, is important. And so that organization has been really transformative over the last almost, I would say seven to, or actually almost 10 years now when they uh, changed their, their CEO, she's not new anymore, uh, Patty Phillips, but uh, she's done some really fantastic things to engage the younger demographic, the emerging administrator demographic, and, and retain them in the organization and capture some of the energy that they have about working in college sports because it's such a fantastic industry. And people, you know, they don't work in college sports for the money. They do it for the passion. And so capturing that energy um, while, they're, while they're early in their careers, I think, is going to be really, help, really helpful to not just build the pipeline, but to sustain it right. know, so that we don't have some of these females dropping out and going to do other things, but keeping them in and keeping them engaged and finding them leadership opportunities every step along the way. So it's been a fantastic opportunity to be involved with that organization and, and give back just as that community has really helped me in my career. I, um, I've, I've seen a lot more from them in I don't know, the last year, but that could also be because I am not sure that I knew they existed before then. Um, And I made a point to, you know, add them to all my social media stuff so I can kind of keep an eye on what's going on, obviously podcast related, right? And I just think it's such a a great um, 
just a great organization to have that camaraderie. And, you know, the dropout rate from women working in sports generally is pretty high, regardless of what area of sports. But in college athletics, I think kind of like if you work in baseball or hockey, it's a little bit higher because of all the hours. And, um, and the, my last guest, Jacqueline Miller, um, worked in college athletics, I think for like a year or two and then, or three maybe. And she was like, I just can't anymore. It's just too much. Um, but that's something that we see, like I said, across the board, particularly if you get into like niche sports that have a lot of games and trying to figure out that balance and be able to, to keep women involved is really important as we create those pipelines and, having people like yourself that younger women can look to and be like, no, I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. I mean, you identified a lot of the challenges and I think part of it is just seeing more women in roles like an AD or commissioner to see how it can be done. Right. Uh, Particularly those, you know, it's where we see a lot of the the tension points are uh, those women that have families and have, you know, children and those types of things and the demands of the job can make it difficult to, to spend the kind of time that you want with your family, but it also can be done. It, it's not an impossible task right. and to have more women in those roles, um, to, to show how they can be successful is balancing all of those different things from a personal family and career, I think is really important because it can be done. And I think one of the things it's easier almost to do it, I think when you're an athletic director commissioner, because you control your time, you control the day, you control, you know, you're, you're in charge. And so you get to set the, the schedule and, and the culture of your department or organization. And it doesn't have to be what it was 10 or 15 years ago or 20, whenever, you know, or even predominantly still today, you know, this culture where it's been mostly men. And so we've, we had just have this environment and expectation about how things are, or not, not expectation, but assumption about how things are supposed to operate. And, you know, like lots of things, just because that's the way we've always done it doesn't mean it's the only way it it can be done. And so I think it's been really great to see women ascend into these roles and then start to change it based on their leadership and based on their priorities and values. And guess what? Stuff still happens. (laughs) You know, games games, (laughs) games still get played. Fans still show up. uh, You can still win games. You can still generate revenue doing all of these things, even if how you do that looks different. Um, and so that's something that I think is is super critical. And at conference office, one of the reasons why I like working in conference office is I I don't have the expectations to go to every you know basketball volleyball match, swimming meet, and donor events like right. folks on campus. Like it, they do have a demanding job. There's no question about it. But uh, there are different challenges in being in a conference office and managing your time and and pressures and those things. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed is, at least in my view. Um, sort of making it my own and and running our organization and building our culture in a different way than traditional conference offices have run. And since I had the experience of working in a few different conference offices, they're all generally the same. Um, So we've adopted different things in our office, you know, based around uh, what I'm comfortable with, what what my values are and what's going to work for our organization, regardless of whether it's something that other, someone else is doing or not. And I think that's really important for women in particular 
to do that and understand that they have control and um, you know some autonomy in changing the the course or the way that things have been done to make it fit. And you know, oftentimes it's it's usually making improvements upon what was done in the past. Would you mind sharing a couple of examples of some of the things that you've made sure are you know, valued and some of the ways that you've made maybe it a little bit, I'm not going to say easier, but like more tolerable maybe in, in yeah, your office. I, yeah, certainly. I mean, and, and some of it may be because we're based in Boston, uh, which is, you know, it's a bigger city. The commute challenges are different here than they were in a place like Indianapolis or Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, and the the cost of living is a little bit different here as well. But <clears throat> because of those factors, for example, you know, and we're, we're still a nonprofit uh, that still doesn't have a lot of money to pay people what they could be making in the corporate sector. Wait, um, you're OK. So I keep forgetting this. It, it's crazy yeah. to me that the NCAA is a nonprofit. Um, yeah. And they OK, so you guys are our nonprofit. All right. Yeah, we're all nonprofits. OK, sorry. Yep. Yep. No, that, that's OK. Um, <clears throat> So, you know, simple things like having a more flexible work schedule, not having these set office hours where you've got to be in by X time and out by Y time, um, you know, allowing people to build their workday schedule around their commute times. You know, trains come in at a certain time and you sometimes just have to work with that, right? Yeah, Um, especially in Boston or, say, New York or Washington. Sometimes they just don't show up. Right. That's exactly right. So being a little bit flexible on that and not, you know, there's still an expectation generally to be in the office, but, um, you know, no one's getting upset if someone's not there, uh, by a certain time. Um, so, so that's something, um, letting people in that same vein, letting people work remote, remote on occasion, um, is also important. You know, there's a cost to commute. There's a time, uh, a time efficiency loss when you're sitting on a train or, or driving in traffic to get downtown Boston. Um, and so letting people work remote and take care of some stuff at home maybe is something that I'm, I'm very comfortable with our staff. And we, we've talked through lots of these things about how to, how to give that benefit or flexibility to our staff, but still make sure that work gets done, still preserve the culture that we have in the office, because mm-hmm. uh, there is a trade-off sometimes, but, but talking through some of like things like that. And then like dress code, you know, I remember <laughs> everywhere else I've worked and, and these are, nothing's like groundbreaking here, right? It's, and some of it's like just evolving as broader kind of corporate expectations also have changed or relaxed, right. but little things like a dress code. We have very few um, in-office visitors to a conference office unless we have, you know, like a pre-scheduled meeting with a coaches group or athletics directors. Uh, but day to day, we don't have a lot of visitors <clears throat> to our office. And so, you know, why expect people who are not making a lot of money to go spend money on this wardrobe to what, like, look a certain way just among people that we see every day? Among and so, 11 of you. <laughs> yeah, among the 11 of us. Um, you know, I remember my first job making like $25,000 and having to go spend a lot of money to ha- now build this wardrobe to meet this, you know, what was this considered business casual then is obviously very different now. Mm-hmm. Um, but to do that and that that's not healthy, uh, financially it probably stressed on me in that regard. And so why would I do that to our staff for really no good reason? Um, <clears throat> so those are just some little things that we've done 
uh, to change the culture and do things a little bit different. We're, we use technology a great deal. We're not afraid to try things out. Um, you know, and, and those are just things that traditionally like, uh, conference offices or college athletics in general just haven't, haven't always done in terms of using what's available mm-hmm. to be more efficient and look for things that can make you more efficient, even if it's different than, like I said, than how everyone else does it. I think that's uh, a lot of sports organizations, whether it's at a team level or league level or what have you, um, governing bodies even. Um, And a lot of it is based on who's been in leadership, right? And so a lot of it's like, well, if I had to go through this, you people have to go through this. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, there's that like... um, Greek life mentality sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah, as, as opposed to the opposing view, man, I remember having to do this. I never want anyone else to experience that again. Right, right. Those, those are very different mindsets and approaches. Right. Um, we, could, we could get into a whole long conversation as to where <laughs> those mindsets come from and all that. Yeah, but, um, but it is, I think, really great because it also makes you more attractive to recruits, right? When you need to hire. I hope so. I mean, I, I hope those types of things, the flexibility is, have helped us recruit people and, and mostly because we're so small, you know, helped us retain the good people that we right. have. Um, and yeah, there've been people that have moved on, uh, from our office to other places and it's an adjustment to go to something that's in an environment that's different. And, um, certainly we've had some people take a look at other opportunities and, the flexibility that we have and the autonomy they have, uh, is, is a benefit. You know, people aren't generally like looking over someone's shoulder in our office. Um, you oh know, my God, on, you treat people like adults that are going to just get their job done because that's what they're supposed to do. I generally try to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, yeah. uh, I, I remember one of my prior, one of my prior life jobs, the amount of micromanagement that you could see happening in the building and being like, I wonder what would happen if you allowed people just to do their jobs. Yeah. 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 It's remarkable, right? Yeah. (laughs) You've, um, you've not only made changes like within your office, but you've, um, you know, within your conference generally, with your member institutions, you have made a couple of things kind of priority, um, mostly with regards to diversity and inclusion, um, LGBT um, athletes, but then also mental health. Um, Can you talk a little bit about when you first started working with and, and integrating you can play into the American East? Yeah, those are, those two particular initiatives, the inclusion, diversity, inclusion, and then mental health um, are really centered around our student athletes. And they tie to something that we're really trying to do to better serve our student athletes and provide like a different student athlete experience from a conference perspective to them. We were so distant from student athletes because we're not on campus. Mm-hmm. The only thing they, we really interface with them on is, uh, our, our conference championships. 
And what we what, what we've long said, <clears throat> like since at least since I started the America East, says I want to I want our student athletes to remember us for something more than just the people that hand out the trophies and certificates at a conference championship. And so that's been one of our sort of underlying objectives is to how, how can we do that? How can we make ourselves more memorable um, and provide that different student experience? So there's the experience part that also has uh, an element of branding. You know, that's how we're trying to differentiate ourselves from our peer conferences. And in the Northeast, there are a lot of, a lot of you know, colleges and universities um, in all three divisions, but in Division One in particular for us, relevant to us. And there's a lot of conferences in the Northeast Mid-Atlantic region. So they're all generally the same. And so finding ways to differentiate yourself from a branding perspective is really important to us. So for us, those initiatives serve two purposes. One, the core purpose to, you know, improve the student experience, but then the secondary purpose to create some differentiation with our brand. Um, and so that's sort of the backdrop of why we spend time on that stuff. Uh, to answer your question, we started the partnership with You Can Play, or we were introduced to You Can Play back in, I believe, the fall of 2012. And the, the issues of LGBT inclusion uh, is of personal interest to me. And there happened to be a guy in Boston uh, that was following on social media uh, named Patrick Burke. And he was he's a co-founder of You Can Play. And he kept tweeting about this stuff. So honestly, I just tracked him down on Twitter and asked <laughs> him, you know, to learn more about their organization and, and invite him to come to one of our conference SAC meetings that fall of 2012. And he came and gave the story about, uh, you know, the founding or the, the founding story of you can play and the reasons behind it. And our student athletes were just completely captured by his story and felt so moved about <clears throat> their family's, um, you know, desire to carry on the legacy of Patrick's brother, um, in this way. And so they made a recommendation to our athletics directors to, that the conference should, should partner with you can play and our athletics directors supported that. So, it really goes back to that, and, and it's just grown every year since. I've been actually really amazed at how we've continued to evolve and grow. The partnership with You Can Play, adding in LGBT Sports Safe, and now expanding this diversity and inclusion, you know, initiative that was originally focused on LGBTQ LGBTQ issues to other dimensions of diversity that you know, we have to address for our, our college student athletes. Um, <clears throat> really impressed to see how that's grown over the years. And it's really been driven every single year and led by our student athletes. Like I look at us in the conference office as just being the, the facilitator of, you know, delivering upon their expectations mm -hmm. and desires about how to grow the initiative. And so it's been really fascinating to see and really, I, I take great pride in seeing our student athletes um, take ownership of these issues in a way that I don't think existed, at least back when I was in college, and being so willing to to be vocal and visible <clears throat> around uh, any any particular group or, or issue or dimension of diversity and be willing to be vocal and visible and stand up for that. So I think it's really great opportunity for them as leaders to develop and own their voice. And also, like I said, provide some great different experiences for our student athletes and help the conference's brand overall. Uh, for sure. I mean, I think so many times when we talk about LGBTQ um, athletes and the, the difficulties that a lot of them tend to face in sports, um, 
that to be known and to live up to an expectation of acceptance and um, and uh, what am I and inclusion is really important um, yeah. and and so helpful from just like a human being point of view, right? Like, you know, just being a good human, um, which you don't see sometimes in sports. Sports does good so much, but there are areas that we haven't always been great about. And, and that's one area. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's no question. Um, the visibility of sports is like a double edged sword, right? It can be when, when folks are using their platforms for good, it can be so helpful to broader society on whatever the issue or topic is. But, you know, conversely, when there's when when that platform is not being used for good um, and there's really like the opposite of good rather than just neutral, but the opposite of good, then that can be so damaging to whatever the issue is. And and mostly the people affected by whatever that particular statement might be or whatever activity happened. Yeah. There's lots of examples from, uh, the social justice or, you know, anything else that's going on in today's society, the microscope that sports sports has, right. uh, I think just has this double-edged sword, but yeah, it's, it's, and on the LGBTQ stuff, you know, it's <clears throat> certainly a lot better today than it was to be, um, either, you know, sort of exploring your identity or, you know, your identity and, and being open about it. It's, it's a much better environment today than it was, five, 10, 15, or even longer years ago, but it's still very difficult when you're going through that. Sure. And I think people who aren't, you know, maybe not as engaged with it, see all of these things, you know, there's rainbow flags for pride day and pride month, more and more corporations and everything else are more visible about it. So they just assume that like the issue is fixed. Right. Um, but that's definitely not the case because there's still so many instances of, of, uh, student athletes struggling with this and having to deal with parents or families or friends or institutions or whomever communities that won't accept them. And that is deeply personal and deeply emotional. It can have like far reaching impacts on their emotional health and sometimes their physical health. So it all kind of comes together and why uh, it continues to be a priority for us in our league. Yeah. And I'm sure that, you know, a lot of it goes, you know, even down to like, coaching and admin and trying to really educate on the, the different things regarding identity that, that people may be um, going through personally, how to, how to help, um, how to be there, um, and also breaking down some of those old notions or... Um, I mean, your example with the pride flags is really fun. It kind of made me laugh internally. Like, yeah, they're everywhere, but you know, there's still issues. It's like, it's like when we declared that racism no longer existed or, or that, or that like, you know, women were equal to men all of a sudden, like everything's fixed, you know, (laughs) like, yeah, yeah. Just because there are a couple of like high profile things doesn't mean that it trickles all the way down. And so to become a, a safe, space um as much as i sometimes dislike that language yeah. but it's a top down 
um, way of, of showing support. And I think that that, I mean, especially those years of someone's life, life yeah. is so important. Yeah. Yeah. They're so still formative. I mean, <clears throat> and I don't know when I was in college, like you think you're 18 or 19 or certainly by that time you hit 20 plus, you think you, you know, have got it made, but it's, uh, you're still pretty young, um, and still learning about yourself and going through some, some things to figure out who you're going to be as an adult. And, you know, gosh, even in your thirties and your forties, that's still like an evolving process. So like I um, barely know who I am. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, me too. Count, count me among those. Um, so yeah, the, the more resources we can provide to make the experience better. I mean, college is a place of exploration of lots of different things. And if we can have more visible leaders, like you said, of coaches, the administrators that they work with every single day, their athletic directors, they can see that there is that safe, welcoming space. I think it just makes it, we, we improve the probability that they're going to develop into themselves in a, in a confident, secure way much quicker than if they don't have those, those visible cues and signals. Uh, yeah. And, you know, from the mental health standpoint, the first, like the, the first and foremost thing is breaking of a stigma. Right. And, and letting student athletes know that it isn't a weakness if they're struggling with something. And then it's also the being able to, point them in the right direction to resources or professional providers to get help because it is a health issue. Yep. No, no question. No question. The stigma is the first step, but it's so layered after that. You know, it's just like the LGBTQ thing. There's, there's like a recognition and awareness that you want people to feel comfortable about talking about something and uh, being afraid to just, or not being afraid to just like raise their hand and say, I've got something that's bothering me. Right. Uh, but then everything after that, like that's the important hard stuff, but we've got to get folks so comfortable raising the flag and saying, I need help or I'm struggling. Um, and yeah, changing the conversation around that, breaking the stigma, wh- whatever the, whatever the thing is, is, is so important. And so it's so great to see, um, you know, we're certainly not the only ones spending time in the area of mental health. It's <clears throat> becoming much more, of a popular and written about topic and covered topic and in the media. And so that's where things like, you know, Kevin Love, you know, I adore him last year, like talking about was so important, Mm -hmm. you know, for the same reason we just talked about athletic directors being more visible, just that for, for people in roles of visibility and, um, to be more open about their own struggles or just saying like, this is okay. Uh, it it just cannot, you cannot underscore, like how important that is for a high school kid or a college kid on a campus <clears throat> to see someone very visible, very popular, who seemingly has everything in order and life is going great to, you know, raise a flag and say, I've struggled. Um, we, can, we need more and more of those stories to, to come out. And so we're just trying to, in our little world of, of college athletics and the America East Conference trying to do that on our campuses as well. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I adore Kevin Love, like just so much. Yeah. Um, him, I've always kind of had an eye towards him anyway, cause he's kind of nice to look at. Um, yeah. but, <laughs> and he's, you know, great at basketball. Yeah. Right. But 
Yeah, when he um, when he started talking openly about his struggles with mental health, I just I was done. I'm like, you're just I I love you, <laughs> which yeah, like yeah. is not really something somebody who works in you know a woman in professional sports usually says about an athlete because yeah. of the. Um, commentary back but i'm not ashamed of this because i think he's great so um you know that's huge it's one of their you know i'm not extremely visible um i'm not on tv but you know for a a good period of time now i've been open about my own struggles i've talked about it on the podcast a bunch um i write about it on twitter or you know linkedin or whatever and when i speak at um, schools or, you know, conferences for lawyers. I just actually did a big in-house counsel um, conference, a panel there. Um, and it was the first time speaking in front of like a, I don't know, we had like, I don't know, almost 100 people there in like our session, I think, of like very, you know, successful attorneys, like high-power attorneys, where I was just very open and vulnerable about it all. But you know, it's a line in my speaker bio that, you know, I've lived with depression and anxiety since I was um, a kid. Um, just because I think it's so important for people to to recognize themselves and someone else when they're struggling, yeah. right? Yeah. And when I was at UMass, and UMass is great, you know, I, I had, um, I think I had a bit of a... a a moment there when I needed some additional help and they did the best they could to get me to somebody and it, you know, it wasn't an emergency type thing, but it was just like, I recognized that I needed help and I grew up in a a household of, um, where people struggle with mental illness. And so I recognize it, I think quicker than other people might. Um, but I didn't tell anybody. I couldn't imagine telling anybody except for like maybe my best friend. Um, I never told a professor that I was struggling or, or, you know, sought any sort of accommodation to help while I was going through whatever I was going through. And, um, I can't imagine the pressure of being a student athlete and also going through that when, you know, kind of like being a lawyer, you're not supposed to show weakness. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's why, I, I, you know, laud you for being so willing to talk about it and putting your speaker by. All that stuff is so important because <clears throat> it's great for people like Kevin Love or I'm trying to think, you know, Michael Phelps talked about it. These like uber, uber popular and identifiable athletes to do it. That That's really important. Don't get me wrong. But it's also important, like you said, people that you can actually relate to. Not everyone can right. relate to Kevin Love and Michael Phelps. Right. Um, but so people in our own communities or networks that we can relate to, I think it's just as important, maybe more important for that, for those like more realistic type people. If you're thinking about it, like to talk about that and be open about it to make it more real and um, just easier for people to identify themselves, like you said, with, with each other. And so, yeah, I mean, that's where student athletes seeing their coaches or their peers talk about it is probably the most helpful thing. And what we've heard from our student athletes is it doesn't have to be Kevin Love or whoever else is famous. Like that's really good to set the higher level backdrop. But if they're still not seeing 
their their coaches or the administration and being open to talk about it, there's no way they're going to express a concern or question or, or say that they're struggling with anything um, because the local support that that's so right. critical to draw anyone out who's struggling with anything. Um, there's got they've got to feel that on a day to day basis. And and it's a power thing too, right? Like Kevin Love has a lot of power in his yeah. position now. Um, Michael Phelps, right? There. Yeah. They're um, paid millions of dollars, like, and they've quote unquote made it. Um, When you're working up the ranks, whether you're a student or you're early in your career, it can be really easy to want to fit in, quote unquote, and and be not be different. Um, You know, we know this from growing up, right? (laughs) It's And, um, so yeah, I, I love that you guys have done this. I mean, for me, it's a, obviously quite a personal thing. And, um, whenever I see an organization that's like, does a really good job with that, it, it makes my heart happy because I know the struggle from a, you know, not from the student athlete point of view, because let's be very clear. I was not a student (laughs) athlete. I was drinking, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And none of my professors can, would, yeah, they, like, it's amazing to me now that they all like me still, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, if I don't have all that additional pressure on me and I still felt that way, I can only imagine with yeah. the external forces that, that are on, on those, um, young adults. So, um, I hope more conferences continue to do, you know, to make this a priority and, um, the NCAA, you know, also, and then, um, and that young, young adults, um, you know, kind of seek out, um, the help that they need. I mean, that's really the big thing, right? Because we know what can happen when they don't. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, all right. I'm going to change the topic to something a little more more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I read that if you had to change jobs for a day, you would mm-hmm. be a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. Why? I still would, by the way. Really? Um, I think it, it it's rooted in, it goes back to me being, at least early in my career, like I said, this <clears throat> regulatory nerd and trying to uh, being fascinated with how the sausage is made, so to speak. Right. Um, I think one of the things I enjoyed about the regulatory side was there are different aspects that I really like, but one of the things I enjoyed, you know, at the national office was taking an issue to it of, to which there's no clear answer, which why it's interpretive in nature, right? If it wasn't, if it was clear, then there's no interpretation needed. It's clear in its face and there's your answer. Um, but I like the debate of, of a of an issue where there was no clear answer and hearing different perspectives and different um opinions on whatever whatever the issue was based on uh, how this rule was written versus how this rule was written and people's interpretation of the intent and all that sort of thing so there's no better place if you're gonna if you like that stuff which i which i do um you know why not go all the way up to the highest court in the land um, <laughs> where they wrestle with that stuff every day, right? Like a case doesn't get to the Supreme Court 
because it's easy or because there's an existing law that's very clear on its face. It's because lots of different attorneys and different judges and appeals courts along the way have still struggled with figuring out what the answer should be. Um, and so that's, yeah, like if you're going to, and also if you're going to, if you just have one day to do something, like why not shoot for the moon? Right. So yeah. that's why, and shoot for something that hardly, I don't know what the percentage is of being a Supreme court justice, but I have to manage it's pretty darn low. So, mm-hmm. you know, why not shoot for something that's at the highest level of this particular, you know, chain of chain of events or chain of sequence and one that's basically impossible, almost impossible to get. So yeah, that's why I picked that. Do you have a favorite justice? Um, it's a really good current or it could be any. Um, I haven't done, I'll be clear and say I haven't done like deep research on every particular justice. I did a few years ago, read a book, um, called becoming justice Blackman. I think it's called, um, and he was critical in the you know Roe versus Wade decision, mm-hmm. and I just found that fascinating to read how he went about doing his research and and you know reaching his conclusion and position on that particular issue. So I, I'll I'll say him, and he I also think he was from Minnesota. So <clears throat> um, <laughs> why not go with him? But so you know, he's because I read that book. That's a particular interest. You know he's someone that I feel more comfortable saying, like I am fascinated with him. Sure. Uh, but certainly any, any number of the females in the court and, you know, a lot of them are just more recent. There's not as, as much literature and in, in history yet on their record or, or profiling of them um, other than like Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, so I'd like to, you know, see as we, as we move on in our lives and their careers and serving, I, I can't wait to see the impact they've had on the court because of the gender and, you know, the different perspectives that they bring from their backgrounds. Um, we are big fans of RGB over here. RBG. I mean, yeah, um, I, I may the notorious. Yeah. RGB. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I may or may not for my birthday have forced everyone to go see. So we have a film festival that comes down here yeah. Yeah. and, um, the, what ended up being the HBO RBG, um docu um was being shown so for my birthday (laughs) i'm such a dork um i made all my friends go to that i i bought off of etsy like a a faux descent collar necklace and the i love it the very (laughs) kind woman um who who made it um i had asked it you know it was pretty quick shipping because we we realized the movie was coming like, I don't know, a week or two before because I don't pay attention. And, um, she sent me one for my cat. That's amazing. (laughs) So Zoe, Zoe has been RBG cat. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I may or may not have a notorious RBG t-shirt. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. I mean, despite what I said about justice Blackman, like it's it's pretty compelling, pretty compelling argument to be a favorite justice, but um, yeah, there's just not as much like deep background on her just yet. There's a few books on her, of course, but um, probably when, when she's no longer on the court, I'll have a better opportunity to get a full picture. Right. Well, and then that new movie is coming out, um, which will be really good, I think. Um, But she is kind of a badass already. Oh, my God. Like, so this workout that she does, 
Yeah. I just started working out again using some app and it's like, fine, it's good. Mm -hmm. I like it. I'm not saying the name of it because they're not a sponsor. And, um, Mm -hmm. and like I'm dying every day. Yeah. You know, but she's doing like 800,000 more things than I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of, speaking of healthy, um, Mm -hmm. what's your favorite fast food? McDonald's. Anything in particular? I go with just a basic cheeseburger, only ketchup, and two cheeseburgers, only ketchup, and a medium fry. I, I saw, love fast food. I'm I, a fast food connoisseur, so. <laughs> I saw I, that. I <laughs> um, your, your role as commissioner, you know, can you explain to us what you do? Like, what that means? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of everything, as like a lot of people who are, whether it's a CEO type position, I think have. But um, what I spend most of my time doing is, you know, at a baseline level, we exist to serve our membership. So what I try to do is spend most of my time figuring out ways to best serve our membership um, in the ways that <clears throat> they maybe aren't doing, or in ways that. Um, are new and innovative. Um, you know, we've got people who run compliance and provide that service to our schools and our staff who operate our championships and those types of things. And so I'm involved a little bit in those things, but that's why we have those subject matter experts to run those things. So where, where I try to fill in the gap is <clears throat> look at what are the new opportunities for us to grow the brand and exposure and revenue of the league. And at, at the you know, that's ultimately what our athletic directors and our presidents want us to do is continue to advance the position of the conference from a reputational and brand perception standpoint. So <clears throat> that's where that's where I spend most of my time, whether that's, you know, making sure, you know, doing like our ESPN deal that we did a few years ago and, and making sure that relationship is positive and their schools are delivering upon the expectations for ESPN that we're maximizing, maximizing our exposure there to, you know, evaluating all the other external things, our website, our digital network, um, our sponsorships, and taking a look at those and see what opportunities there. Um, Social and digital media is a really big part of what we do in our office and in our league and another way that we've tried to differentiate ourselves from our peers. And so in order to do that, once you've, I think, like we have been able to carve out a little bit of a, a leadership position relative to our peers there is, what do we have to do to maintain that position, you know, and keep growing and keep taking advantage of the new technology or platforms that are out there. So I spend a lot of t- my time on those issues and, and those sort of subjects or topics. You've been, you were a fairly early adopter of Twitter relative to others, in, you know, peers of yours. Yeah. And, and that actually, I started using it when I was at the NCA. Um, in my previous life, <clears throat> working in Division One recruiting rules, when coaches started to use Facebook and Twitter, and you know what's a wall post versus a message, right? And mm-hmm. how those how do those intersect or or not with our recruiting rules? And so I I started to explore it there just so I could understand the technology better, so we could help educate our schools and and within the rules. Um, and so that led to you know, just gets continued interest and fascination with technology and those social media platforms uh, personally. And so, yeah, when I, 
when I got the commissioner job, you know, we, I continued to use that because I think it's important. <clears throat> it was an important, uh, vehicle for us to talk for me to talk about our league and our brand. And then that evolved into, you know, bringing some more focus <clears throat> around our, our conferences, social media platforms and using those in a more, in a more strategic way, um, as those platforms developed. And so, yeah, it's, we do spend a lot of time on it. It's, it's fun. I think, I think it's a lot of fun to do that. Um, but it's easy content that we can generate for ourselves and, uh, grow the grow grow our brand, tell our stories of our student athletes because traditional media just you know, usually doesn't cover our schools or our league. Yeah, and it you know it gives you that like immediate. I don't know that like you're able to just connect easier, right, with people. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and have that quote unquote relationship. Um, yeah, which is I think fantastic, and it it you know it took sports a bit longer to get into the, yeah. the Twitter sphere, I think, um, which is kind of surprising given the obsession over any type of media, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah. It, it, it definitely evolved from using Twitter, like to just post scores as like a <clears throat> more as a secondary vehicle or a complimentary vehicle to your sports information offices right. um, to using it as a, as a branding tool. Mm-hmm. And I think the ones that adopted that mindset earlier, um, you know, were just better positioned to, to use it in a more thoughtful way. I heard a pupperoo shaking. What kind of pup do you have? Yeah, I have a puggle. Oh she is God. 11 and like three quarters. Uh, yeah. So she just had enough of me on the couch. So went into the <laughs> Uh, new positions for her in afternoon nap. Right. Well, listen, pug life is hard. Yeah. yeah so I get it. Um, I'm guessing that she will be part of this next, um, the answer to this next question. But um, what do you do by way of self-care? It's a good question. Yeah. <clears throat> Having a dog has certainly been mm-hmm. helpful for that. I, I got I got Lucy... Uh, when I was at the NCA actually and working, you know, way too many hours and just getting a dog helped me, um, get out of the office at a regular time, you know, simple things like that. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't no longer just stay there till like eight or nine o'clock without a break other than going to get some food. So, um, you know, that, that was really, really important and it, it still is, you know, keep me on a sort of a schedule and just have something else, someone else that I'm responsible or accountable to. Um, has made a difference in my life <clears throat> going back to then. But other than that, like I, I'm very mindful of my time and my, my calendar and schedules and almost to a point of being obsessive. Um, but that's so important to me because I'd like to be efficient in what I'm doing, uh, both to make sure I have, if there's a project that I build in time to get it done, mm-hmm. or if I have a call that I, I carve out time to make sure I'm prepared for it, but also to make sure that I just have time to relax Right. So <clears throat> I travel a lot um, and building in time or pockets of time where if I come back from a long trip that I don't go into a day full of crazy meetings. Now, sometimes, you know, you just there's no other option based on whatever's going on. But to the extent that I can control it, I try to build in that time to just relax and check out for a little bit. Right. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not afraid to spend, you know, Saturday or Sunday or whatever the day might be <clears throat> to take like a mental health day. Uh, just so I can get refocused and recentered, um, because it's 
you know, nothing is particularly in this industry. Like I'm not, you know, I hate to use the analogy cause it's, I think overused, but you know, I'm not saving lives with like, you know, needing someone needing my attention, like a physician or emergency room right. person. Right. Um, so we can build in time, should build in time to, to rest and take care. <clears throat> so, um, and I, I think a lot of people don't realize the extent to which they can control their schedule and building in time to just check out or do whatever you need to do. Um, I see people let other people control their time. Um, and that's just something that I, I just don't do. Um, so building in time in and of itself, regardless of what I do at that time, just sit on the couch and do nothing or read a book, mm-hmm. um, go walk my dog, watch a movie, you know, a mindless movie, uh, which I've known to do as well. Um, <laughs> those are like the little things I do, but it, it starts with managing my time and my schedule. I, I, like I said, I, I am, you probably can tell, I am obsessive about it um, because I do think it's so important uh, for, for on the work side, but mo- mostly it's done for personal reasons to make sure I don't, uh, I don't overcommit or overindex on something. Which is so easy to do, right? Especially, yeah. I mean, this time of year, Jesus. Um, yeah. And- I mean, I should work out, I should work out more. I should eat better, all that stuff for self care. But, um, my mental, for me being like emotionally and mentally in a good spot all the time. and be- oh, We lost you the most oh, we lost you there for a little bit oh sorry back yep i think you were saying for me the men- emotional and mental health yeah for me the emotional and mental health is the most important thing to get me recharged i you know i think i'm very similar to you in that respect um i mean yeah work out more see also <laughs> walking like a grandma this week because of working out, you know, sleep yeah. is, is super important to me. Um, yeah. that's like one of those things. And yeah, I, I've been known to be like, I don't want to talk to a human for two days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. And like, do, you know, recognizing it and making time to, to do or not do that is yeah. Important. I like, think it's important. I do too. Um, do you, how do you, when you're obsessing over your time and your words, mm-hmm. do you, are you a, um, do you have an app or something in your phone? Are you like a big, are you a calendar person like on your phone or do you use a planner or, you know? Yeah, I use, I use my calendar or Outlook calendar, my Outlook calendar. Um, that, that's how I control, control my time. And we, in our office, we have a shared calendar where people can put stuff and, you know, making sure that that's updated. Uh, I think by now our staff knows how valuable I find the cal- calendar to be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, yeah, we've, that's one of the things we've changed in our office, people actually using it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a small office is kind of easy. Oh, I see you. We can have a meeting now, but no, like get, being more intentional about scheduling things is, is really important. So, yeah, if it's not on my calendar, it's it. I I will forget about it. It's like it doesn't exist, honestly. So I I put everything on there that I can, not in a crazy kind of way, but um, no, I'm yeah, I'm the I, same. Yeah. I mean, I I will forget very important things. Yeah, 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 and being able to like look ahead, what's going to happen next day or next week. I I look at my calendar a lot uh, during the day just to make sure my time <clears throat> on any given day and for the whole week you know, an aggregate is budgeted appropriately so that I can 
give my best to the the work stuff or the personal stuff if there's personal commitments on there, but also make sure there's time for myself. There has to be that right balance in my mind. And if you're not tracking that, like how are you going to know that you're, you know, that you're at least going to try to pr- protect some balance on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis? Um, do you schedule in time for learning? I do. I do. I don't always put that in the calendar. So I guess the, the breaking a rule that I just said, um, <clears throat> but that's like in the, in the downtime. So yeah. on the weekends or in the evenings, I don't watch as much TV as I used to uh, for, for lots of different reasons. Um, so I'll read more in the evening, whether it's read the news, you know, get caught up in the newspapers or, uh, read, read a book. I, I do, uh, I do allocate time in that sort of way. And if there's a book, like there's this book, I really want to finish like this weekend, maybe today. Um, like that's, that's on my to-do list yeah. and I have time built out like tomorrow afternoon if I don't get to it today to, to finish it. What is it? It's it's called On Beauty by Zadie Smith. It's one of the like few novels that I've read probably in the last few years, but it's it's really good. And I, I just I want to finish it. I've only got like seventy five pages left, so I, um, it's going to happen. Do you <laughs> do you? Uh, I forget the word for this. Somebody, I just became aware of the word for this. But do you have a stack of books that you've started or that you're working through at one time? Uh, no, I try not to start a book. I try not to just start a book and let it sit there. So I have a stack of books I'd like to read, yeah. but they have, they have been unopened. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Depending on like my mood and what I want to, or what I want to work on, I may start yeah. a book and then the next, you know, if I haven't gotten through it the next week, my mood has shifted or so then I start. And then there's always the, I actually don't want to think and I just want to read and escape. And so there's always that book that's happening at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I could be, I wish I was talented enough to read multiple books at once because a lot of people do. I, for whatever reason, I've just not been successful at that. I just haven't. It's like one book at a time. I'm not sure that I retain all of the information as well as if I did it right. So like the whatever book, the book that I'm reading right before bed is never going to be one that requires deep introspection, right? Or that stimulates my brain to think of new things, right? It's always going to be something I can kind of fall into. Um, But then the other books, you know, the... Nonfiction books, fiction books. Yeah. I always get that wrong. You know, nonfiction. It's one of those things that I need to work on. Um, <laughs> I. This is something that I'm trying to figure out now. Is like, how do you how to read those in a way where you don't just not take the the lessons out of it, right? And you just yeah. read it and then be done with it. And so, yeah. I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah, I struggle with that too. I um, I'm an underliner in books. Like I mm-hmm. I, list, I use Audible for some things, but more this like story based things. Yeah, same. If if it's a if it's a book where I expect to, you know, or anticipate having some takeaways, like substantive takeaways, then I I, I have to go to hard copy. Same because um, I I underline or dog ear pages. Me too, and people get so mad about the dog earring. I know. 
It's but so whatever. weird. It's your book. You can do what you want with I'm it. I'm like, the book doesn't opinion. feel it. Right. If anything, it should be like proud that a page is getting dog-eared. Right. It's like it means something. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> You're like my kindred spirit on this. Yeah, I like it. No, I'm totally with you. Um, yeah, I think right now, right now I'm trying to get through, um, you are a badass at making money. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Is it good? Jen Sincero. Yeah, it's good. I mean, I've really only gotten like one or two chapters in, and a lot of it's the recognizing the stories that you tell yourself about money, right? And yeah. so like yeah. a lot of that, yeah. and yeah. Um, which sounds cheesy to some people, but I do think, and and I'll admit I'm one of them, like there are people who who in, who believe inherently that they don't understand money or that they're not good with it, and some yeah. of it just might be because we just didn't really learn well how to you know how to manage yeah. it because of what we grew up in, or I don't know, we just skipped that class. I don't know. You know what <laughs> right, I mean? Like, right. yeah. And it's yeah. it's funny because from like a professional point of view, like obviously in my jobs, like. I understand budgeting and all of that, but it's like the personal stuff that yeah. is just a disaster. So, yeah, yeah, I should probably read that book too. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. I mean, I read "You Are a Badass," her original one, um, mm-hmm. and that's a that's a good book too. Again, it goes into like some of the stories you tell yourself about yourself, mm-hmm. um, and and working through those. And and um, I love books like that. You know, anything Brene Brown, all of that stuff. I'm just all about. So, yeah. Um, Can you please tell the listeners where they can, let's start with the American East, where they can find the American East online, on social, all of that. Yeah. Uh, Our, our website, obviously everyone has a website. We have a website, americaeast.com. Very simple. Um, We, but where you can probably find the more like relevant and com- timely pieces is on our social media accounts, uh, our Twitter account, Instagram, both just at America East. We have a YouTube YouTube page as well. If you do a search there, um, those are the big those are the big platforms off, okay. off the top of my head. We we have a digital network that has uh, where we broadcast most of the sports other than the basketball uh, at AmericaEast.tv, also on your browser. And then since we're in basketball season, uh, you can find just about all of our men's women's basketball games on ESPN3 or ESPN+. Great. And then how can they reach out to you if if so desired or follow you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, as we talked about. Um, my handle is AE underscore commish. It's the same on Instagram. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, so any of those methods are perfectly fine for uh access accessing me and communicating with me yeah thank you so much for being on i really enjoyed our conversation yeah thanks so much for having me it was a lot of fun Thank you so much to Amy and Lucy, who is in the background, for popping on to the podcast. Um, I enjoyed our conversation so much and um, and applaud, you know, all of the things that Amy and her staff are doing to make the America East um, a more inclusive and... Um, let's say student athlete friendly, uh, conference. Um, 
make sure you check her out. She also wanted me to tell you that Lucy does have her own Instagram too, which of course I don't have in front of me, so I can't tell you the name. But I bet if you go to um, Amy's, then you'll be able to find Lucy's. And I'll try and put it in the notes somewhere. Um, please make sure you are subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It'd be really great if um, your little present for the holidays to me and um, the guys at Radio Influence would be a rating um, and a review of the podcast. It helps new people learn about the pod and gets us out in front of them. Um, So, you know, do that. And then while you're doing that, take your um, cousin's phone and subscribe to the podcast on that phone and give us a five-star rating there too. (laughs) I may or may not do that with people from time to time. Um, And then, you know, follow along on all the social at LTPF pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our Facebook group is leveling the playing field group. And you can email LTPF pod at gmail.com when you subscribe rate or review you can do that on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher tune in and you can also find us um, in the radioinfluence.com network of podcasts check out some of our some of our podcast peers over there and you can check out ltpfpod.com but I would just wait until I announce that we've revamped it because it's going to look really pretty. I'm very excited about that. Have a wonderful, safe, and happy holiday season. And I'm looking forward to more time with you in 2019. I'm Jerry Petock, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com.